Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My novel, Insatiable, one of Waterstone's best books of 2021, is now available to pre-order in paperback. Coming in February, you can get an exclusive special edition from Waterstones with extra chapters and sprayed edges. Waterstones also have exclusive signed copies of my new novel, Careering, which is coming in March and it's available for your book listeners to pre-order. Now... On to today's guest, the author and publisher Dave Eggers. His first book, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, was a Pulitzer Prize nominee. He founded the literary humour title and publishing house McSweeney's, and we're here to celebrate the publication of his 13th novel, The Every, a suspense-filled satire about capitalism that follows his 2013 bestseller, The Circle. We talked about Moby Dick, whether books wait for us to read them, and why his wife is the funniest writer he knows. Also, just to make you aware, this interview was conducted over the phone, so the sound isn't quite as clear as we'd have liked it to be, but hopefully it's all still audible. Hi there. Hi. Over this last, you know, bizarre 18 months where everything has changed, has your reading changed? Are you picking up different books? Are you reading books in different ways? Are you reading more or reading less? Or has it all stayed fairly consistent? Let me think about that. I, I don't think it's changed much. I think for the first six months, I was just trying to avoid everybody that was telling me to read The Plague. Um, <laughs> I just had to keep saying, no, thank you. Or I just did. Thanks. Um, the book recommendations early on were really dire. Everybody wanted you to read something about a similar or worse time. It was really strange, but I don't know. Maybe that brought comfort to some people to know that people made it through worse times. But um, I uh, I don't think I altered my reading all that much. Um, but for a while, instead of, I tend to read in the morning when I get up, and um, instead of reading, I was checking, you know, COVID stats when the pandemic had hit Europe first and then we were just on the verge and wondering um, what our case numbers were going to be. I would check that maybe for the first three, four hours of the day. And so my reading kind of fell away for three, four months. But then I think uh, when things hit a certain uh, level of not predictability, but at least 
um, we were deep into the pandemic, I, I was able to sort of restore uh, my prior reading regimen, I guess. I, I think I've heard a lot of people saying that, you know, we think we can control things more by knowing as much as possible. Um, certainly the people I've spoken to found that they noticed, you know, feeling, I mean, obviously it's not a fair test because of course no one is relaxed. There's a pandemic, but not having as much reading time, it felt stressful. And then when the reading returned, there was a level of, I think, engagement and a level of peace that came with it. Is that something that you felt at all? Um, I think it's the same level of um, peace that I get from reading it, especially in the morning. I'd say maybe 10 years ago, I changed my habits um, from reading more at night to starting uh, the morning with coffee and uh, about, you know, an hour and a half or so of reading and usually something that I'd been, that I should have read decades ago. So mostly dead people, I'd be, I, I would read in the morning. So that's about as restful as, you, as it gets, a dead author. Um, can you I remember the so. you were picking up 10 years ago? Was there anything in particular that triggered the, the change in routine? Um, no, I just, I found that I was um, a lot less likely to fall asleep <laughs> when I was <laughs> reading in the morning. And as I was w- reaching some level of, um, consciousness and, and with, with, with the coffee kicking in, um, between that and reading, um, some, uh, long dead author, I, it gave me a very calm and sort of, to use a California word centered sort of feeling, um, at the beginning of the day. And also, um, you know, ideally you would draw inspiration from whatever you're reading and get excited about going into my garage and starting my own work day. So it's been a something that I've been recommending to everybody I know, especially everyone I know that falls asleep within half an hour and when they're in bed reading at night, I sort of say, this is a much better way to start the day and checking your email, um, which is just almost uniformly alarming. Um, uh, this is like a way to sort of ease into the day um, by sort of walking through these corridors of the past, I guess. And uh, it's, it's like walking through an ancient, you know, campus with, you know, with uh, ivy-covered walls and, uh, and uh, long colonnades. You know, it's just very sort of soothing. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, in that time, were there any books that you remember thinking, why have I only just got to this now? I wish I'd read this years ago. This is wonderful. Well, I, I mean, always. I think invariably half of what I read fits that bill. Um, I just got through uh, an old edition, a modern library edition of the selected writings of Herman Melville. And um, a lot of this is not just not really available right now. This edition, I think, is from 1954. And there are all these short stories that I think are, should be canonical, but are very rarely read now. And much, you know, nobody really talks about his short stories outside of Bartleby. And, um, but there's so much good stuff and so many sort of 
brief classic stories that you think would be um, assigned, you know, at the high school and collegiate level, things that you just would have assumed were part of uh, our, our collective uh, canon. But um, so I think, you know, you cannot go wrong with Melville. Everything that he writes feels like it was written yesterday just because of the passion and the wit. And um, he's just so um, ecstatic about anything, even if he's writing about, you know, uh, a, uh, an insect that burrowed into a dining room table, which he went on about for, I think, about 18 pages in one of these stories. But still, it, uh, it leaps off the page. That's the work of a master, isn't it? Someone who can hold you and take you with them when they're working in that sort of infinitesimal detail. And I do, I love, I think, like Bartleby shows up in contemporary novels all the time, you know, those ideas and that theme, and it just keeps being revisited and it's never felt fresher, even though it was, you know, sort of so on point at the time. And sometimes I think it's, I, I still, I've never, I've tried to read Moby Dick and I've never finished it. And I've always felt a bit daunted by it. And maybe I was too young. Oh, you have to buy it again. That's the best American novel. Um, and I think you just, it, you know how it's not really the right book for the right person. It's the right time. Yeah. And so you might take another run at it and you just never know when it's going to hit because I tried it a few times in my twenties and thirties and it didn't take. And then I, in my forties, I started reading it uh, every couple of years and it's just, um, it is very funny, especially the first few chapters. Um, and, um, and after that, it's just, uh, uh, there's no sort of more, guess unique American voice um, and given when he wrote when there was so so little I think electric American prose his was the first I think truly sort of like lyrical and electricity ridden uh, sentences that just uh, could not possibly any any one sentence of his could not possibly have been written by anybody else but that's when he's grappling with the larger themes and um, and it works on sort of biblical level almost mm. it has that scale of myth and, and uh, Greek epics. And um, I think it, it holds up almost more than any other classic of that era, which, you know, some, some, even a lot of Twain and um, certainly a lot of the books from the 20th century just are, uh, you know, they have elements that are kind of dated. And um, but something about Moby Dick is completely timeless. Well, I'm definitely going to try again. I know it's, you know, me and a lack of maturity that's stopping me, but I'm 36 and I find it very, very comforting that it, it took you a few goes to get into it. I wanted to know oh. the first book that you remember reading where you think, uh, this is what this is what books are for. This is my book, the first book that made you feel sort of electrified as an independent reader. There's two answers to that. One was um, I was not a huge reader when I was a kid. I was always outside and uh, wanting to be doing anything but sitting. Um, and so I was just one of those antsy uh, 
outdoor kids, I guess, that um, I really did not sit voluntarily and read a novel until my freshman year in high school. I read everything that was assigned to me in class, and I did fine at school and everything. But in terms of like picking up a novel off the shelf and reading it through, that was when I was 14. And, um, um, and that was Dune by Frank Herbert. And I think I just picked it. We had a reading period in high school, a freshman year in high school. And uh, we, were, we were just put in a room and full of books and pillows, and you had to sit and read for, for a period, and you had no, no other choice. Um, and so it took that kind of calm atmosphere and sort of reading mandate to get me. Uh, and you could read anything you wanted to in the room. And so I read Dune um, just based on the cover, I think. And, uh, and that was the first time I just felt completely transformed or transported and fully immersed in a world that I had chosen. There were other books before that that I liked a lot, but they had all been assigned. You know, like I remember the book of the Dun Cow being another book like that that I felt completely sort of immersed in a few years before. But like, I don't read first... that book. Oh, the book of the Dun Cow? Um, God, I got to look that up. Um, it used to be assigned a lot here. People of my generation often would have been. Uh, required to read it and it took place in a farmyard it was mostly uh it was um walter wangerin it was sort of a classic of its time i think it was really you know pretty well-known book back then and uh you know i think it's prominence has diminished a little bit over time but it's really vivid it takes place in a, in a farmyard with basically you know who's going to rule the roost you know in among the roosters in a but it, it rises to sort of this, you know, incredibly heightened level, even though it's just uh, uh, chickens. <laughs> and so <laughs> in that way, it was around the same time, I guess, as uh, trying to think of the book about uh, rabbits. Um, was it Watership Down? Yeah, Watership Down. So it's, it's, it's uh, similar in scale and intensity. Um, that and that it could be read by kids it could be read it's sort of an all ages uh type of book that at least has a accessibility to younger readers because of the you know the protagonist being animals but i think that it's that these are these rare things that are sort of rarer now which is a truly all ages novel which i think is a very necessary form that we don't talk about or allow so much anymore because I think that's so motivating to younger readers as well. I think no reader ever wants to feel sort of talked down to or, or condescended to. And that, you know, to read in a way that feels really inclusive, I think, you know, that's so unusual and so important. Do you have, I don't know if UK editions of books for younger readers have age groups levels on the back do do they do that there where they say this is for ages five to eight and seven to nine and things like that i remember it when i was a kid i don't know if there's that and sort of i guess we call it i think we know it as middle grade fiction um and sort of for the, the under 12s but then sometimes you know if i pick up a um like a ya book i'm i've been really surprised and startled by how dark those books and those stories can be and then I forget, oh, yeah. when I was a teenager, that was what I loved, and that was all I wanted to read. <laughs> yeah. No, I have two teenagers. So I, um, 
the subject matter is impossibly dark. Um, I think the book that my son, who's 12, just read was about the ghost of a young boy who had been shot and killed in one of our American cities riddled with gun violence. And um, so it was told from his point of view, which I just thought was um, so bleak, but my son uh, loved it. And so I think that there should be, I, I think, categorizing books as middle grade or elementary level or this age group, we really do it down to a science here, right? This is for ages seven to nine or 8.3 to 10.4 or however, <laughs> you know, it, it's really diminishing. And I think if you're a reader that doesn't exactly fit into, you know, the exact reading level of your age, it can be shaming. And um, I think it's just such a destructive thing to have yeah. all of these you know, micro categories listed on the back of a book so that you drive away everybody else. Um, it's a terrible thing. It probably had good intentions when they started doing it, but I think it's uh, uh, um, it's bad for literature, for sure. Definitely. I mean, you know, I think of you as a high school freshman, and I imagine if that was applied now, you know, there's no way that June would have sort of got into your hands under a teacher's direction anyway. I could be completely wrong about this, but I believe that when, you know, we worry about younger people and what they're exposed to. And I think on a page is sometimes the best way to be exposed to it. You know, yeah, that... it's a very safe place. It's everything that I think would be much more startling in a different medium is um, more, the word digestible isn't the right word, but it's close enough. Um, you can handle, I think, much more tough um, information and, and um, situations on the page. And I always say that, you know, having, we have a center here called AP6 Valencia that we started back in 2002, and it's a writing center for young people ages 8 to 18. And um, I think for them as writers, it's a safe place where everything chaotic and uncontrollable in their lives, they can put it on the page and it becomes um, tamer and become, and is given a, a boundary and is given a beginning and a middle and an end. And, and a certain piece can come over a kid that feels their life is not within their control and suddenly they are controlling their narrative again. And so for as readers and writers, um, you find kids that read a lot are tend to be calmer, you know, more sort of um, thoughtful about um, their world, more empathetic. But that calmness is really something that I've seen for 20 years now, that it's very different than the jittery way that kids that live mostly through screens appear. You know, it is a, it's a very, it's, it, 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 if I could only convince everybody of the, the, the uh, and I remember feeling it, you know, reading Dune, just being forced to sit still and being forced to, uh, you know, be partner to the creation of that world. Because when you're reading as a kid, you are an equal partner with the author in terms of bringing that to life because it's your imagination that's coloring, you know, the skeletal, um, such a great way to put it and you know I think yeah. every book that gets read it becomes a different book 
every time for that reason. You know, there are sort of potentially infinite worlds and books and, and ways of reading and ways of you know having your imagination be prompted. Um, I was curious about whether there are, other than the, anything you mentioned, um, any books that you've shared with your children, any books that your children have shared with you, and any anything that you hope that they're going to come to in time? Well, sure. I mean, at this point, it's been hundreds of books. Um, um, this is, a, you know, uh, at this, by this age, you've read probably 500 picture books, right, by the time they're this age, and then another few hundred chapter books. And so it's it's really hard to pinpoint. Um, they're, it's just, uh, and now we're just at that, you know, that, that last stage where you're not reading together as much. What's funny is that you, you do, that we always made these attempts. I mean, speaking of some books that, that don't necessarily age as well, I remember looking at a, we bought an edition of all of the Wizard of Oz books that had been reissued and really sort of a reproduction of the original books with the same illustrations. And um, it, it was, we, you know, we went at that thinking that we would be revisiting these classics and that they would, you know, be just as we imagined or, uh, because I don't know if I ever read the Wizard of Oz books as a kid, you just see the movie and that's that. But it was interesting to see that these were almost in, in, incomprehensible to us, you know, the language was very stilted and dense and really hard to figure out where the action was and like what actually was going on. And I think that you do find that every so often where the, our style of language and how we read and um, sort of how even sentences are structured and chapters and sort of what we expect in terms of clarity of action and um, has changed a lot. And I think that that series was a funny one where uh, as much as we appreciated the craft of the book and beautiful presentation and everything, they just didn't sing the way that you'd expect them to still. Um, and maybe that's a bad answer to that. Maybe I should just be celebrating some books that we did love. Um, I will say that we read a contemporary edition of Dr. Doolittle from, I don't know, maybe four years ago that I was uh, amazed at how great that that was, and I think it's been rewritten in different forms, but between that and things like Treasure Island really holds up, and um, Mr. Popper's Penguins really holds up, and I'm always interested in those books that uh, transcend time. S.E. Hinton's books, Beverly Cleary's books to some extent, um, where they sort of read exactly as they did uh, uh, when you were a kid, they, they come alive uh, the exact same way. I loved those books and I found them, they're in our local library and I don't know, is it, are they in like Connecticut or Cleveland? But it just, you know, in the middle of sort of, you know, rural Buckinghamshire, their world sounded so thrilling and exotic, even though, you know, quite normal things are being described in sort of the right. Bees and Ramona universe. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, it, 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 again, if, if it's done well, um, the, I mean, you know, if you read Wind in the Willows, that also, um, the Trumpet of the Swan, um, trying to think of, you know, you, you come to these books again, hoping, desperately hoping that they still work, 
I guess, and that there hasn't been anything lost. And Charlotte's Web is still a perfect book. And um, but I think every so often, um, you know, the books have their time and place, and they and they don't they don't work for us as well as as uh, as others. And I think that's a very you know it's a, it's, a, it's a hard hard to determine what would or wouldn't. But I do think that when you go back to a certain sort of um, passion on the page and a sort of uh, a um, that kind of thing, whether it's Paul Fellow for me or or Melville or um, Willa Cather or you know I'm trying to think of a lot of the dead people that I go back to again and again. So much of it has to do with just sort of a um, unfenced, unbridled kind of passion that they're willing to um, put on the page, and the more mannered. And uh, sort of writing, I think, is it tends to be tends to date itself more readily mm. and a little bit less relevant as the years go on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We'll be back with Dave soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. I've chosen The Audacity by Catherine Ryan. This is not a typical celebrity memoir. It's extremely funny, obviously, but it's also a fierce and moving story about the truths of contemporary womanhood. Catherine writes brilliantly. Buy this for Christmas for the best women you know, or buy it for yourself and spend Boxing Day with Catherine and a tenth of Quality Street. The Audacity by Catherine Ryan is published by Blink and out now. Now, back to Dave. I muddled through the first part of the pandemic here by reading E.B. White's letters um, so because there are lots of them so it really keeps you going and yeah. hearing about how he you know he's right nothing changes um, quite depressingly I think that um, he got paid about the same money for an article in um, sort of you know the, the turn of the century or um, you know sort of like pre-war era as is like you know the going rate in certain publications in 2021 but his yeah the way he talks about the natural world and his writing and who he's writing for and his, you know, integrity and his sense of humour and how he 
there's such sort of you know dignity in in his words and in his writerly persona but also he has a sense of humor about himself and about life and you can see why the work remains so fresh and so vibrant yeah did you did you read one man's meat oh i think i might have read that as part of a collection um is that him writing was, about the farming yeah so he leaves new york and he goes off uh through the country, I forget where, if he was in Maine or uh, anyway, but he goes to live on a farm and, and writes about that. And, um, and it's, you know, uh, I think that this was episodic. I think he wrote these pieces for the New Yorker from time to time and um, as being sort of like an amateur gentleman farmer. But, um, and there are a lot of them are sort of light and amusing, but um, suddenly in the middle of that collection, he goes back to the city and it's the late thirties and he's talking to people that are justifying um, or trying to apologize for uh, Hitler. And, you know, before, uh, during his earlier, you know, rise to power and sort of excusing the fascists. And um, in a way that I read this during their early, maybe the first year of Trump's presidency. And it was, so familiar in a way, um, and and he was so enraged in what had been sort of a a gentle book. Suddenly, you know, he goes back to the city and gets this dose of uh, apologism and, and uh, um, appeasement and mealy-mouthed lack of moral clarity, and he's just just spitting mad in the middle of what had been kind of a, a happy book about farming and. Uh, and I loved him for that, and I loved yeah. that he's going to sort of uh, his sense of you know, moral direction was, I think, very true and very unshakable, and I think it comes through in the fiction too. And I think, you know, Vonnegut had the same thing, and um, so many authors used to be. I mean, maybe I'm sure it's still happening here, but but maybe not as much in fiction, uh, where that sort sort of moral compass comes through um, a little bit more nakedly sometimes. And I think that uh, we need that, you know, I think uh, one of the reasons I always loved Vonnegut was that he would just break out of his narrative and strip away the artifice and just tell you what was right and what was wrong and um, how he felt about it. And, um, and I think that that was so refreshing and especially as a younger reader, when you're looking for that kind of, uh, clarity when you're looking for somebody to take a stand um, and to step out off step off the stage and um, walk into the audience and tell you what he really thought. I I I, I would value more of that. I guess. And I think with someone like Vonnegut as well, that's like his. I feel like he makes a, a reader feel safe in a way that enables them to step into the danger and strangeness of the book that you know that ultimately the universe he's creating obeys laws that the real one should and doesn't I suppose and I think often of his god damn it babies you've got to be kind even though I'm very bad at remembering um you know his plots or anything that actually happens in in the books but that and you know sometimes I think in the hands of a different writer, that's sort of a polemic or a philosophical statement might jar, but with him, you're like, yes, of course, 
Yeah, maybe he it's had to earn it, you know. Maybe he spent years kind of because his, he had a really uh, circuitous route through his prominence and he struggled, you know, he wasn't a well-known writer until he was probably, I think, 46 or something. Um, so I think by that time and what he went through in Dresden and the war, I think it gave him a certain um, moral ballast that it would be that, that I think people recognized right away. Um, you know, and then Vonnegut later when his sister was killed in a car accident and his, his sister's husband, he adopted their kids. And I think all of these things from his biography, I think people sort of recognized it gave him, uh, they, they saw him or I saw him as the, the real deal. Um, so he's had a, a unique position to preach, I guess, from. <laughs> and uh, we could trust what he said because of what he'd seen. On the subject of writers taking the uh, the securities route, are there any authors or books of sort of recent times, not necessarily recent times, that you think deserve to be much better known and much more loved? Oh boy, yeah, there's uh, an endless number. Um, I mean, I'm a publisher, so uh, we publish books um, at McSweeney's our little company um, all the time that uh, I would, it would be great if they were sold in the hundreds of thousands of copies. There's a writer um, named John Brandon that we've published most of his novels, maybe all of his novels. And um, he has a brand new one out called uh, Ivory Shoals. That's about right after uh, the civil war in the U S a young boy making his way across Florida, um, looking for the father that he never met. And so it's a little bit, feels a little, you know, in the same era, maybe it's Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, but um, there's no better contemporary writer of sentences than John Brandon. But is this a writer that you have read? Uh, I've not read John Brandon, but now I will. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, why is he not read widely? Who knows? I mean, it's, I think that there are a thousand injustices in the book world, and they're hard to explain, because I do think all good books get published. I, I do believe that. Um, and then, but what happens at that point? I don't know. It's been this mystery that we've <laughs> um, been living with for 25 years as publishers and uh you know next week we started in 1998 we put out you know maybe a couple hundred books and um so many of them would or i think are just as good as the books that sell are at the top of the bestseller list and um but it's very hard to figure out what you know um, gets widely read and what doesn't but i do think he is one. Um, all of his books are great, and it, he doesn't ever can't write a bad sentence. He can't write a bad book. It's very uncanny, and um, I, I would say that a good portion of what I read is fairly obscure, I guess, because I I'm often reading books by friends of mine that uh, haven't yet had a 
a large audience yet. I would say that there's a, my high school teacher named Peter Ferry, who is one of my uh, favorite English teachers. He retired from teaching and started writing novels, and he's written a great novel called Old Heart about an octogenarian from uh, the Midwest who uh, abandons his adult children, lies to them, basically fakes his own death. He can go back to the Netherlands and look for a woman that he fell in love with during World War II. And um, it's a totally liberating and beautiful book um, that deserves a wider audience. But I love so the many. premise. He's, actually, he's just written a new book that he sent me the other day, and he's probably uh, he's not slowing down at all, even though he's uh, uh, a little bit older and me, but um, I don't know. There's just there's just so many um, books, and it's, it's it's I always think about how how it's a it's a just and merit meritocratic merit meritocratic world where I do think that books uh, get published if they're well written, um, yeah, but once they're published, uh, what happens after that is utter mystery to me. Um, before we uh, go, it's all gone so quickly, I wanted to ask you what you think, other than anything you've already mentioned, uh, what are your favourite funny books? What do you think are the funniest novels? Well, this is going to sound um, unobjective, but it has to be. Um, but my wife, Vandela Vida, wrote um, the, the book that made me laugh hardest in the last decade um, is called We Run the Tides. And it came out over there, I think, in the last 12 months. Um, and it's about uh, a young uh, girl, 13, 14 years old here in San Francisco. And um, to me, it, it captured that period better than anything else I've read. And, um, and it made me laugh so hard. I, you know periodically choked and cried and had to uh, stop and and wipe my face with my shirt um and that doesn't happen very often i i so often pick up books that are that the cover says it's the funniest book that somebody's ever <laughs> read and it doesn't you know doesn't work for me but i think that that's that's how humor works it's just so incredibly subjective but um i i do think uh uh, I'm just very happy to be married to uh, the funniest person I know, but uh, I think it's uh, it's it's also just a, a world that I wish that we had a little bit we had more of those books. You know, I, I do think even back in Vonnegut's time, you know, whenever he was being funny, people had less you know respect for his work, and I think that it's been very hard to publish books with a sense of humor and still get that, um, I guess, that respect that an author would want. And uh, uh, Laurie Moore is another favorite mm -hmm. author. Really, after Dune, I was going to say that the novels that I read in college that were most personal and meant the most to me were Laurie Moore's. And um, she's very, very funny, but um, very, very... Uh, serious as a, as a novelist and as a short story writer. Um, and those are the ones that people um, 
uh, make me laugh out loud. But uh, those are two people, Emily and, and Lori. Uh, I did. I loved um, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital so much because it is so funny, but so sad and serious in places. And that sense of how when you're a teenager, everything is so serious. I think she captures that with such clarity. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, that was the first sort of young women coming of age book I think I, I, I read. And um, it's still the one that um, comes back to me um, most hauntingly. Um, and I happens to be the book that's always on our uh, on one of our shelves that I see every day, um, face out. So it's a, oddly a very uh, ugly an unappealing cover to it. It's just like the, the worst cover to this book, and I hope that they've redone it by then. But it's just so in uh, off off topic and off point. But uh, but Lily Mora is just uh, she can do no wrong in in my book. And Birds of America, I think, is one of the very best mm-hmm. stories in the English language. And um, she was the first author that I would go to the New Yorker. I would go to the magazine rack every week uh, when I was 20 years old to see if she had a new story. Uh, so she was the very, this was the first contemporary author that I was sort of keeping up with everything that she did and sort of waiting every week to see if she had written something new. And, uh, that was, and that, you know, physically having to go to the store and look, I think, is yeah. a... A lost start. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to be funny in a novel and to sort of maintain, to not let it become, I guess, a little corny or, 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 or do everything in service to a cheap laugh. Um, but those that can do it well, like Richard Russo, I was reading an old book of his, he does it really well. Um, uh, obviously, Nick Hornby does it really well. Um, but it's a, it's a really uh, hard uh, tightrope to walk, I guess. I have so enjoyed um, speaking with you, Jay. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's been really fun. Huge thanks to Dave. The Every is published by Penguin and out now. If you love The Circle, you'll be captivated by it. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thank you so much to everyone who has left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and their new favourite books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Dave at acast.com booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Barbara Trapido. It's a showy habit I've got to be always quoting poetry and stuff. Some of us use our brains and some of us use our memories. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 